Good morning, everybody. It's so nice to see you. You know, I'm typically in the office before this Bible study, but I had done a Eucharist at ESD this morning, and so I was kind of coming in right before class. And it's so fun in just the middle of a random day to see the church filled with cars, and just cars all over the building. It's great. So I'm glad to see all of that, glad to see all of you. And even though we are one minute early, let's go, because I need time today. We're still in Genesis creation stuff. So let's open with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, as we continue to study the word that you have given us, may we be inspired and challenged. May we be stretched but not broken. May we be able to hear what you have done and continue to do and hope to do through each one of us and through this community to extend your kingdom here on earth. Please be with all of those who are not able to be here today, those who need your healing touch, and those who are alone. May they feel your presence and be uplifted by your spirit and our prayers. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to start with a little Q&A, but I want to say a quick word to you all. First, I've had many comments about how nice it is to actually talk to each other after Bible study. So I'm going to tell you for a third week go say hi to someone you don't know after Bible study. It is so nice. Do we, if we, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but if we have Baptists in here, the Baptists are thinking, duh, that's just what you do, right? But Episcopalians need a little nudging. So just, just go say hi to somebody. And I want you to know, if you are not a member of St. Michael or not with us on Sunday mornings, you may not know that we have been and continue to be doing a little journaling, a little spiritual discipline each day about grace and now gratitude. In September, we were encouraged to write about moments of grace, those moments when we feel the real presence of God, and to write each one of those moments. Now that we transition into October, because it is already October, now that we are in October, we are going just one step deeper, and we are trying to articulate what we are grateful for. These little journals, these little blue books, are available on tables and on the little stands as you leave today. If you have not gotten one of these, please know they are for you. I would love for you to take one, and they are not dated, and so you can begin today. There are 60 days worth in these little journals. And as you will see, the spaces are very small because I encourage people not to write too much. Don't be too complicated. Just simply say a few words, note what, when you see God in the world or what you are grateful for each day. And people have been telling me just how much of a difference it makes to do that daily. I mean, we are talking about a minute a day. It is so simple. And I want you to know, just because, you know, we're friends, that the reason we're doing this is because back in the 90s, Oprah started gratitude journals. And I have been jealous of Oprah since the 90s because I think that was such a great idea. And so finally, I'm having my Oprah moment. So go get one of your journals, keep track of these things, and I bet you in 30 days, you will find that it actually changes the way that you live in the world for the good. Okay, so now we're gonna jump in and we are going to discuss some questions that I got from last week, which are very good. First, question is, is there more to the idea of light and dark on the first day of creation? For example, is the light good and the dark is evil? And then the question goes on to say, I've never been able to reconcile the idea that light came before the sun, the moon, and the stars. And am I being too scientific? Great questions. So we're gonna start with the scientific question. So these stories are parables. They just are. This is not about science. This is not explaining the way that anything works scientifically. This is a story about how much God loves us. That's it. And so don't worry about whether there was light and dark before there are the things that produce the light. Because if you remember, I don't know if I have my drawings here or not, um, but if you remember, this was their impression of the world right? The earth is flat. There's a dome above us that holds the water back. And whenever God wants to, God just opens the dome a little bit. That's rain. Okay. That's not true. (laughs) But it is true. Okay. So even if it's not scientific, it can still be true. 
Hey, even if it's not scientific, it can be true. So this is not science, it is true. Just like there can be light without the stuff that makes light in a scientific sense, because God is God and the light in the dark is as much a parable as it is anything that we might point to as scientific. That's important to note because we are about to look at chapter two and the creation story is totally different. If we need this to be scientific, then we have to reckon in the first two chapters of the entire Bible, the contradiction around the stories of creation. And so I feel, I really want you to not worry about it, right? If, if this has always been some kind of science to you, or if you have wanted or thought you should think that it's scientific, or you have felt guilty that your friends who seem to be such good Christian people, they can quote the Bible and all that stuff, that they think it is scientific. And so you sort of think like maybe you're supposed to, to be a good Christian, and, but you really don't, and you've been worried about it. Stop worrying about it, all right? They are praying for you. You can pray for them. That's all. It's okay. okay. So, the light and the dark, the good and the evil, that is a great question. Because I think what's behind that question is, was there evil at the beginning? That's a biggie. I, I can tell you that throughout Christian history, I mean, throughout human history, period, when it comes to religion, people have not agreed with this. And even within denominations, there is, there is kind of the theology, and then there's what most people think. They don't always go together. What I will tell you makes sense to me is because of Jesus, free choice is an absolute must. We must be able to choose God or not. If we are not able to say no to God, then the love that we see that Jesus articulates to us is not true. You cannot force someone to love you. If you try to force someone to love you, that love is not true. I do believe God loves us truly, which means we get to respond to God or not. We get the choice. If free choice is the kind of logical or philosophical starting point, then by not choosing God, we actually choose what? It's a little dramatic to say we choose evil, but in a functional sense, we are either putting good out or putting something else out. We are either choosing the good, which is God, or we are choosing something that's not good. When we make those choices, we are either bringing more good in or we are bringing more of the bad in. Evil really is something that comes from the creation. It is not from God. So yes, there was light and there was dark. But I think reading into the dark as evil and the light as good prior to the creation is problematic in a theological sense because it takes away our impact in that story. Okay, so I have, I have said something that is not easy. So I'll try to say it, kind of summarize that. Evil is real, and so is good. God is good all the time, but because evil is real, evil comes from somewhere, and evil comes from us when we choose something that is not God. Okay. I will pretend like that is clear enough for you <laughs> and encourage you to send me clarifying questions, right? These are, these are in the pews for you, right? These cards. These are where I get most of the questions. You can email me too, but these are great to submit and you can drop them or hand them to Susan or Monica on the way out and I will get them at to clarify it because things like light and dark that's a good clarification if you've got a question someone else has the same question so don't be afraid to ask all right the other question i received was let me see if i can summarize this 
Is God invisible to us? And the question is kind of wrapped around this idea that people believed after seeing Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are those who don't see and believe. And if we are created in God's image, why would we be visible if God is not? I am honestly not sure how to answer that question um, because I think in a sense we are divine, but we are both. And if we've got that Godness in us, then we've got that light, that divinity within that we need to feed through our actions. But the visible invisible is a difficult question because I think that makes what is spirit too tangible. I kind of want to resist even thinking in that way because to say God is invisible presupposes that we can't see God in one another, and I think we can. Now, obviously, we're not seeing perhaps the whole of God, but I also want to remind us that God isn't some anthropomorphized person somewhere. We have to talk about God in the limited way we're able to talk about anything. But God isn't kind of a person somewhere that we can't see. There is no kind of castle in the clouds sort of thing. We know, scientifically speaking, that what is beyond the clouds in a way that they did not. And so if heaven needs to be a physical place, where is that? Because it's not in the clouds. Okay, we figured that out. It's not kind of around earth somewhere because we know that. And it's not sort of at, on Mars or it's not in some other galaxy. And we know that the universe is expanding and that at the end of the universe, we can't tell if there's anything beyond. Okay, so that sort of stuff becomes problematic. And let me put it a different way. As science matured, the church chose to try and work against science. And the way that the church tried to work against science is by pointing out what science could not prove. So as science began to develop their methodology to prove a reality, the church would say that everything they didn't know was God. And in a, I call that the God of the holes, like the holes in the logic of science. That was kind of okay at the beginning because science didn't know most things. As science has progressed and discovered more and more, because the church's position was that science was bad and wrong, the church was left with whatever science didn't know was God. Well, that hole is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And so necessarily God is getting smaller and smaller if that is what you need to do to science. So I would say we just put that away and don't try and understand God in some scientific way, visible, invisible, light, or the absence of light and that sort of stuff. That's all science. That's fine. God's just beyond all of that. We cannot understand God and yet we're supposed to try. It's not a very good answer. And I'm very sorry to whomever asked that question. Um, but I want to sit with that because I'm not sure what else to say. Because it's difficult to get into that scientific kind of debate. Lastly, someone asked me to clarify a comment I made last week about how Anglicans are not Protestant. That's always a good one. The church started and for 300 years there was just followers of Jesus. Then Rome got involved. They tried to codify it. It became a Roman sort of institution for a short period of time. And then Rome fell. And the western part of Europe, which was mostly Italy and, and the others, sort of fell into disrepair. And literal disrepair in the sense that the postal service no longer worked, the roads weren't maintained, people couldn't travel. We call that the Dark Ages. We can, if we're not careful, think that everyone was in the Dark Ages. They were not. In the Middle East, 
Turkey and the others, Greece, Turkey, and the Middle East, they flourished with intellectual thought and philosophy and mathematics and science, and it was wonderful. And the Eastern Church flourished right along with them. However, the traditional seat of Christianity was Rome because that's where Peter died. And Peter was the rock. He was the first among equals. And so there was this historic, traditional place of Rome within Christendom. Fast forward to the Middle Ages. We get out of the Dark Ages in Eastern, I mean, in Western and Central Europe. And Rome wants to reassort, reassert its authority. Well, the churches in the East say, excuse me, like we have been just fine without you. And we have progressed without you. Why would you now become the center of the Christian world when you've been absent for hundreds of years? So they begin to fight over authority and power, and in 1054, they split. That is where we get Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches. That is the first time there is any official split in denomination, what we would consider denominations. So it took a thousand years to get there. Then we kind of got the hang of splitting, and we now have split, I mean, by some measures, there are 30,000 different Christian denominations in the world, and most of that is America's fault, just to be clear. There, there were a couple dozen until America got a hold of Christianity, and then it was like every church down every street decided it was not agreeing with the other church down the street, so they became a denomination. And I'll never forget going to a prayer breakfast in Alabama once, and I was the only person in a collar. Everyone else was some kind of church. They combined the words church, God, Christ, Bible, gospel, free, equal. I mean, you name it. And they just kind of, it was like, it was like word soup. Every church had some combination different of those words in order to differentiate themselves from one another. It was really fun. Um, and I was just like, Episcopalian, sorry. Um, once we get to the Reformation, there is an idea that the church, the Roman church, mind you, the Eastern churches, the Orthodox churches, they're just rocking along, they're fine. The Roman church begins to go off the rails in some significant theological ways. Around the 13th century, there is a theologian in England who begins to reimagine what the church could be. He teaches some people and some of those students go back to mainland Europe, continental Europe, and they begin to teach people too. Fast forward 200 years, Martin Luther. In England, those reformers were developing a new way of being Christian. In Europe, reformers were also developing a new way to be Christian. The problem, though, was that the English Channel prevented lots of communication between the UK and continental Europe. So the reformers began to split just because they couldn't talk to each other very often and with any high quality. By the time Martin Luther comes around, John Calvin, Earl Zwingli, every little country had its own main reformer. The people over in England had diverged from continental European reformers enough to do it quite differently. So even though it happened about the same period of time, the English or Anglican reformers were doing it very differently than the European reformers. The European reformers, they, they were unique. You know, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Earl Zwingli, they were all doing it slightly differently. That's where we get groups like the Lutherans and the Presbyterians. But their umbrella was that the church needed to be changed from the outside in. So the Protestant churches, by and large, look very different than the Roman Catholic Church. But their starting place is very similar. Roman Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestant start from a very simple premise we can answer all the questions about God and the world. You have a question, we have an answer. That's dogma and doctrine. 
right? There are answers to questions that are clear. If we don't have the answer to that question, we will work on it and we will answer your question. Anglicans are somewhat different. They decided to reform the church from the inside out. So they still looked very Catholic. And I don't know about you, if you ever brought a Catholic friend to an Episcopal church or seen Catholics visit an Episcopal church, they often sort of feel like, oh my gosh, this is more Catholic than my Catholic church because we still wear all the stuff and say all the words and they know what they're doing. But we changed the starting place and now we didn't get this perfect, but Anglicans in a very general way start from the place of we cannot understand God in the world, but we can try. And so we try until we learn that we weren't good enough and then we get better. So Anglicans, in a sense, allow for the world to help understand God. And theological way to say that is that the spirit is still at work. The spirit is not done and finished, and we just simply have to understand what the spirit did. The spirit is actively at work right now doing stuff, revealing to us and as the Spirit reveals to us, we prayerfully can change the way we do stuff if we are learning more about God. So classic example, can women be priests? Well, the Anglican Church never really said no as much as they said we don't do that, but yet. And when women came and said, we feel called just like men, the church slowly, too slowly, but finally got to where they said, we really agree that perhaps what we thought about what God was doing wasn't complete. And we have been opened to a more complete understanding of what God's doing. So that's why we are not Protestant. <laughs> If we need to be to shorthand something, whatever. But we really do have a separate branch, really a fourth branch of major Christian theology. Okay. I spent too much time on questions. So take that, digest it. Let's get into Genesis. Last week, we talked about Genesis 1. We talked about the creation story as being inspired by the Enuma Elish, which was the Babylonian creation story. Now we get to chapter two, and chapter two is wholly different than chapter one. It is possible that chapter two is perhaps what the Israelites kind of thought before they went to Babylon. Then they experienced the Babylonian creation story, and they thought, hey, that sounds actually kind of good. Or we need to prove to the Babylonians that we're better than them. And so they adopted that story as well, but they one-upped the Babylonians in the telling of their story so that God was better than the Babylonian God. A note to make. Oh, I'm sorry, let's do this real fast. So the scope of this lesson, the first section we're gonna talk about humanity. Oh, humanity. Second part of the creation story is going to be the garden and the trees. The garden and the trees. Third part of this second chapter is going to be about the helpers. Before we get into that, a note. A careful reading of Genesis 1 and 2 might uncover the different names of God. In Genesis 1, God, we don't get this very clearly in English, but in Genesis 1, God is referred to as what? God. Just God. English. God. In Genesis 2, God is referred, referred to as Lord God. All right. That is not a mistake. Let's talk about the difference. God, in Genesis 1 is Elohim, E-L-O-H-I-M, Elohim. That is the word for God. In the Semitic languages, Akkadian and Hebrew and whatever, El, 
that E-L, Ael means God. If you ever see a form of E-L, then you will know that God is in that word. For example, there's a place called Bethel, right? Beth-El, the house of God, all right? Bethlehem, by the way, is the house of bread, Lahem. So, Ael is God. If we do Lord God, that is Yahweh Elohim. Okay? Genesis 1, Elohim. Genesis 2, Yahweh Elohim. That is why Lord God is used in the second chapter, not just God. Why is that important? That alone helps us see that there are two different stories, two different traditions, two different ways of talking about the world. Not only are the stories structurally different because they're way different, even the name of God in the story is different because they just come from two different traditions. It's like if you were to tell the story of George Washington, ah, better. If you were to tell the story of Abraham Lincoln in Alabama, that's different than it is in New York, right? (laughs) It's still a real person. And the stories are probably both true, but they're very different. And the way that people are referred to are different based on how you feel about them. It's very possible because this story, the Genesis 1 story, is inspired by the Babylonian creation story. It's just God because the Babylonians talked about God. The end. They wrote an Akkadian. That's a Semitic language. They would have used El, E-L, to talk about God. So the Israelites just did the same thing. This Genesis 2 story makes it more personal. Remember, they are writing this story after the kingdom has fallen. So when they review their life, they're given the name Yahweh when? From Moses, right? Moses gets this Yahweh name from God. They begin to use that name in and around the Exodus with the commandments and the formation of the Jewish identity. That name is for the Israelite people. That is their God. That's not anyone else's God. So they make it personal by using Yahweh. This Genesis 2 story of creation is a personal creation story. It is not cosmic. Genesis 1 is gigantic, right? It is everything in the cosmos. I imagine this swirling. Remember the moment when the two genies appear in the movie Aladdin? Remember? And Jafar, nope, Jafar. That's right, right? Jafar, help me. He's the bad guy, right? And like y'all haven't seen Aladdin. No one's, okay. So when he becomes a genie, what does he do? He goes up and he swirls the cosmos all around. That's what I see in Genesis 1, is this like gigantic planets and stars and everything swirling around. In Genesis 2, we get a garden. It is not cosmic at all. It's actually anti-cosmic. It is as simple as it gets. God makes a little garden where fruits and vegetables grow and where little animals scamper and where he creates humanity. There's nothing cosmic about it because it's not meant to be all-powerful and sovereign. It's meant to be a love story. This Genesis 2 story is for us. So let's jump in. Look at verse 4b, the second part of verse 4. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed humans from the dust of the ground and breathed into the nostrils the breath of life. We talked at the beginning of Genesis 1 of this idea of God's breath, of God's wind. In Genesis 1, the wind is present, but in Genesis 2, the wind becomes the breath of life. God is literally taking dirt from the ground and forming the human 
All right, we see that the reference here is to man, but as I noted before, in the Hebrew, dirt is adama, and from the dirt is formed the human, Adam. So there is a play on words here that becomes the name Adam, but that name comes from a derivative of dirt. So God literally takes the dirt and forms the dirt man. That is what the Hebrew is saying. And so God takes this dirt and God acts like a potter. All right, the image here is that God is touching the creation. God is literally forming the creation like clay is formed with, from an artist, and God is potting, creating, sculpting the dirt man. And God does this, why? We see, there was no one to till the ground. Do not miss that Genesis 2 is told from the perspective that God has created a beautiful thing, somebody needs to take care of it. That somebody is humanity. We are not the sovereign controller of the creation. We are put here to take care of it. Fast forward real fast. Well, let me stop there before we get into the garden and the trees. Any questions so far? Did anyone question why there are two versions? No. So, which is, that is a good question. So the question is, was that ever an issue? No, because nobody needed these stories to be scientific until very recently. Never, never, never were these stories meant to be scientific. People could read these stories. Think about, we've got two separate histories of the kingdom of Israel in the Bible. You've got Kings and you've got Chronicles. They talk about the same people. They tell basically the same story, but they're different stories. We've got four different stories about Jesus. Why do we have four? Well, because no one alone gives us the most dynamic image of Jesus, which is why be very, very careful ever pulling a verse out of the Bible to prove an idea. That will pretty much never work because anyone else, anyone can pull a verse out of the Bible that contradicts the verse you found. It's just the way it goes. Anything anyone has ever told you that the Bible says, it does in that verse, but you can go to a different verse and the Bible says almost exactly the opposite. So whatever you think the Bible says, I'm almost positive. I can show you where the Bible says something that's pretty much totally contradictory. So what? The Bible is not meant to be this literal law book. The Bible is a story. That's it. And so until recently, it was okay that the Bible was just a story. It wasn't until what? The scientific unknown got smaller and smaller that people began to double down on the actual scientific accuracy of scripture. I mean, literalism is not a historic thing. Literalism is a modern construct, but literalism is based out of fear because it's not okay to tell most people that the Bible says lots of different things about everything. People wanna know what the Bible says. And most people like to go to a church that tells them what to do and what to think because the Bible says so. Listen, it doesn't work that way. I am telling you, there are, there are colleagues in this city who love to go on TV and tell you otherwise. They are not right. Just saying. I've invited some of them to come here and to debate. They have not accepted. Um, okay. Any other questions? Okay. Let's go on. Yes. Was that a person? Was that a yawn? What was that? Okay. Look at verse 8. 
I'm going to cut this up, um, these next two sections. We're going to look at verse 8 and 15 together. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Skip to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. So let's focus first on the garden. The garden is where the creation happens, right? Genesis 1, you get the cosmos, right? You get planets and sun and moon and stars and you get all this big stuff. You get that dome over the earth and all the other stuff. Genesis 2, God just makes the heavens and the earth. Boom, done. And then God fills in this beautiful garden in the garden does all of these wonderful things and then puts the man, the dirt man, in the garden to tend to all the stuff God created. A note about Eden. Eden is an actual place. There's no garden there. But Eden exists. It is very possible that Eden was used because, it could have been two reasons. The first is, Eden was far enough away that the Israelites at this time would have known that it existed, but they couldn't really get there. So it was a real place, but not a place they could verify. So that could work. It also might be that Eden at its root means beautiful. And so they may have picked a real place that had a double meaning to reinforce that this garden was something great, right? This was not just your backyard garden. This was perfection. And Eden had that implication of perfection in the name itself. The scripture goes on to name four rivers that flow through Eden. And the implication here is that the rivers come from the same place. And the implication of the same place being from God, right? God brought up these four rivers, and those four rivers flowed through this perfect garden, this center of creation. We know two of them from our Western Civ class, right? The Tigris and the Euphrates. Okay, they are in Mesopotamia. It is a fertile area. The Israelites would have known that. And so hinting to that Mesopotamian region would make sense to them. Because imagine where the Israelites live. If you've ever been to Israel, you know that some stuff grows in Israel, yes. But Israel is not what we would consider a breadbasket. All right? Israel can grow some stuff. But Israel grows hardy stuff that doesn't need a lot of water. There's not a lot of things like fruit in Israel. You get olives and that sort of stuff, but not the big, chunky, juicy stuff that we see, say, in the U.S. or Mexico or that, those kind of places. But there was this image of Mesopotamia as being a place where anything grows, right? Fruit. If you can put yourself back three, 4,000 years ago, would there be anything that tasted as good as like a ripe peach? I mean, there was no sugar, there was no baking cakes, there was none of the, that stuff. Ripe fruit would have just been the best. And so the image here of fruit is not because somehow fruit gives us everything we need, we know it doesn't. But in the ancient world, nothing tasted as good as ripe fruit. And so there is this sense within the language in that time that the best of the best is in this garden and that it's kind of over there where you know lots of good stuff can grow. Just for edification, Tigris, Euphrates, Mesopotamia, we're talking about Iraq area so that we can kind of place that in the Middle East right now. There are two other rivers that are named there, the Pishon and the Gion. Here's the problem. They are not in Mesopotamia. They're not even close to the Tigris and the Euphrates. They are real rivers, but they are in southern, is southern Israel and central Israel. They're not all together. And so another indication that this story is not meant to be scientific. This story is meant to show that from God comes life. Because what was water? Life. You couldn't live without it. You couldn't cart it in on pallets of bottles. You had to be near a river, and it had to be good fresh water in order for you not only to drink it, 
but to grow the stuff you needed to eat. And so what this is saying is that God provides for us and provides the best for us and provided the best for this dirt man in Eden. Fast forward, let's look at verses 9 and then 16 and 17. Verse 9, out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jump to verse 16. And the Lord, the Lord God commanded the man, you may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Have you ever told a child not to touch something? <laughs> How's that work? I mean, we are human. And our human nature is such that tell us not to do a thing, then what do we want to do? That thing. I mean, I know some of you are nice, good rule followers, but I'm definitely not. And there's this sense of the untouchable, like, don't go over there. I mean, almost any story where someone gets in trouble, they were told not to do the thing that got them in trouble. They would have never done that thing had they not been told not to do it. In a sense, this is an odd moment because certainly God is not dumb. And so what really is happening here? God would not have created a tree that looked great and then said, you can have everything in this garden except that one. Because of course, something's gonna happen. I mean, maybe the dirt man's gonna resist it today, but we know that that's not gonna always be the case. And why then would they have structured this story this way? Jump ahead, and what kind of question are they wrestling with? Two things. Why do bad things happen? I mean, why do the bad things happen? And why do we die? What is death? What is that all about? They begin to try to vet these very, very fundamental questions. You don't need any science to understand that people die. And you don't need any science to understand that people can be bad to each other and bad things can happen. This is a way for those ancient Israelites to hold two truths together. Bad stuff happens and we die, and God loves us and God is good. I have to think they could have potentially told this story a little better, but this is what we have, and this was their attempt to try to explain those two truths, hold them together, and keep them keep the bad stuff from being from God, right? We talked about light and dark. They are structuring the story such that God wanted everything for us, gave us everything, perfection, provided, and yet we just couldn't hold it together. We just couldn't do the one thing that God needed us to do. Now, that one thing was not eating from a tree, okay? The one thing was just choosing God. That's it. I mean, the Bible is not complicated. Jesus says what? Love God, love each other. That's it. We just can't. We try, and we have moments, right? That's what we're recording here, right? This is not a bad moment journal. We have plenty of that. This is a grace moment journal. Why? Because there's not much of it. It's a lot easier to find those little moments of grace than it is to catalog all the moments of ugly that we experience in the world. We just can't be loving, put simply. We have moments and they're great, but anyone who has ever known another person knows that we can all be ugly we can all be judgmental, we can all be mean. We can all be short, we can all be crabby, we can all be angry, you name it, put whatever word to it you want. We cannot keep from eating that fruit. That's just how we are. The ancient people knew that too. And so for these ancient people, 
This is the way they told the story of how we became like this. It wasn't that God made a mistake. It was that we chose it. Does that make sense? We haven't gotten to the point where they're eating the fruit. I just want to take the minute to say this is a strange passage because you would think, hey, God, don't put the tree in the garden, right? <laughs> I mean, we can solve this problem. Why is the tree there? That's not the point, right? The point is explaining what is real by telling a good story. Okay, questions about that? All right, now let's get to the good stuff. Look, we're going to talk about the helpers. Look at verse 18. The helpers. Verse 18. God, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle, all the birds of the air, and to every animal of the field. In essence, what we have here is a first try. God sees that the dirt man needs a helper because what's his job? To till the ground, to help everything grow. And there's something in the implication of the story that he just can't do it on his own. It's just too much work. And so God says he needs some help. And so God takes the clay again and begins to form, begins to sculpt all the stuff we know is real. Animals, birds, doesn't say fish, but we're gonna go with fish were there too. So we get all of the animals to be helpers. And then this amazing moment, the dirt man gets to name everything. That is a very interesting note. You may know that naming a person in the ancient world was a big deal. The way that the Israelites expressed that is when a child was presented at the temple, the first thing that the priest at the temple would say is name this child. And by naming the child, the really the father, but we can be generous and say the mother and the father, claimed responsibility for the child. Now this is an old kind of thing to do, right? We do that here. If you've seen baptisms here, there's always that moment where I will say, name this child. I know the kid's name. But there is this ancient practice of claiming the child in this sacred way by naming the child in public. Really, this came about because sometimes the guy, you know, you didn't know if whose baby that was, right? Unfortunately, you kind of always know who the mother is. Sometimes you don't always know who the father is. And so they created a structured cultural moment where the father claimed the child. Actually, biology was not that important. By naming a child in that moment, that person became the father. The end. In this moment, God is giving the human that power. That is power in the ancient world. That is not because God just can't think up any more names. It's because the human is meant to care for it all. And so God creates, and then the human says the name. That's a big moment. However, my mother once told me that God created man and then thought, I can do better than that and then <laughs> created woman. In a sense, that is kind of what happens here. God's looking to give the dirt man a helper, and the animals just aren't enough. Look at verse 20. 20b, the second part. But for the man there was not found a helper as his partner, 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. We'll pause there. We'll talk about the last two verses in a second. The animals and the birds, they were helpers, but they were not what? A helper as a partner. There is this sense that man and woman together create what is the partnership that we need in order to care for the world. This is a, this is a profound moment that says we really can't do this alone. We need each other. We need partners in the world, not just to live, but to care for the world. And that's not, that's not necessarily an environmental statement, although you can certainly read it that way. It's more so about just taking care of business, to just be in the world. You need a partner. And we all, through those partnerships, realize more about God's truth, right? What does Jesus say? When two or three are gathered, there I am. Jesus doesn't say, when you're by yourself praying, there I am. Now, is God present when you're by yourself praying? Sure. But is God present in a different way when we do it together? Jesus seems to think so, so that's good enough for me. So we need each other. And in this story, we see that God takes the dirt and splits it. What's important to note about this Hebrew is that we don't really get the kind of gender that is impl implied in the English. I'm not gonna work this in to death, but I just want you to know that what's really happening in the Hebrew is you're getting human, and then God takes what is the dirt, splits it, and you get man and woman. What's also interesting to note is that as we go on, we get this, these echoes of what we might think of as marriage. It is not. The Hebrew has nothing to say here about marriage. The Hebrew has to say something about partnership. It's more about not doing things alone than echoing some form of legal relationship. And why that is important is because we don't get husband and wife language in the Hebrew. We continue to call these people the man and the woman. That's all it is. So I just want to remember, we don't know what we don't know. Let's not read what isn't there. What we get here is very clearly implying that we need each other. It is not trying to presuppose any other kind of relationship. It's a human condition here. That is all there is in this story. One other note. Let's look at verses 24 and 5. Actually, so, I'm sorry, I should have read this before I said what I just said. Verse 24, therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. The man and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I should have read that to then say what I just said, which is, that is not the Hebrew. We might get wife here. That is not what it says. It is the man clings to the woman and the man and the woman. There's no husband-wife language here in Hebrew. Some thoughtful translator has tried to help us understand implication. So you have implication here, and then you've got the technical words. You can take whatever implication you want. I want you to know, as we are studying this, the word is not husband-wife, it's the man, the woman. Second thing to note, the man and the woman were both naked and they were not ashamed. What a weird thing to say. Um, I mean, not that, it's just, it's odd, right? Like, what note is that? Um, what is happening in that phrase is an ancient understanding of nakedness. Think about when someone is referred to as naked in the Bible, 
What is that implication? It's never sexual. It's about their poverty. Okay, nakedness is never about something sensual, sexual, nothing. Nakedness in the Bible is about someone's vulnerability and not emotional vulnerability. This is about literal vulnerability. They have nothing. When Jesus says you are to clothe the naked, Jesus is not talking about put clothes on the people who are having too much sex. <laughs> I'm just saying, right? Let's be clear. Jesus is saying there are people out there who have literally nothing, not even clothes, not even the basic thing like clothing. We are responsible for them. They are vulnerable, vulnerable because of their nakedness. At this point in time, when the Genesis 2, when the creator writer is saying, the man and the woman were both naked and they were not ashamed, it's really an indictment on what nakedness becomes. Because nakedness becomes something that indicates a person's poverty. But at the beginning, God created us to be naked and to not be ashamed. If we put that idea together with something like the Beatitudes, it actually kind of makes sense. Blessed are the who? All the people we don't want to be most of the time, right? We don't really want to be meek. We don't really want to be poor. We don't want to be vulnerable and weak. We want to be strong and powerful, successful and influential. And Jesus says, blessed are all those other people because theirs is the kingdom of God. And right here in the beginning, we see that that understanding was very real to the Israelites. God created us to be totally vulnerable and that vulnerability was perfect. All right. Man, I finished on time, that is so good. Any questions or clarity? We have three minutes. Yes. What is the significance of the fruit on the tree? Maybe. Um, and what you're saying is that significance has come, that significance of fruit is, goes way beyond Genesis. There are lots of myths that talk about fruit. Fruit kind of represents something precious, something valuable. And as I noted before, we don't really think of fruit that way, but in the ancient world, fruit's the only way you could get sugar. And that gives you a lot of energy, right? It was not easy to catch and cook meat, right? It just wasn't easy. I'll never forget when the first time I we went to the Holy Land, we were in Bethlehem and there's this fantastic restaurant where you kind of sit under this gigantic tent around these big tables and they brought out this huge, basically lazy Susan, full of different salads, right? Pickled fruit, pickled vegetables. You had potato salad, hummus and baba ganoush and pita bread and all, it was beautiful. Olives and, oh, so good. And I just began to, you know, gorge myself because it's all delicious. And I was sitting with a bunch of Americans and 20 minutes later, one of them says, when are we gonna get lunch? Well, at that point, I had eaten lunch. And I said, this is lunch. I said, what? And they said, where's the meat? Ah, see, we, we have this misperception of food because we just, we always think you start with meat and then you fill in everything else. That's totally modern. And by the way, it's not good for us or the environment, but that's a different story. So... In the ancient world, and almost really until the last century, meat was a pleasure. I mean, it was a luxury, serious luxury. And so back thousands of years ago, you ate vegetables, and if you could make bread, that was really great. But fruit does not last. You know, carrots last a while, right? Potatoes last forever. And you can eat lots of those kinds of things over weeks and weeks and weeks. But fruit, you pick fruit 
and you've got a small window to eat that fruit. It doesn't travel well because it bruises up, right? Throw carrots and potatoes in a bag, throw it off a cliff, they're still gonna look great, right? <laughs> Not apples, peaches, grapes, all the other stuff. So there is this sense in the ancient world that there's almost nothing more precious, valuable than fruit because it is so unique. The Israelites are not the first culture to use fruit to explain something of value. And so they're all influencing each other and we're seeing that influence here in this story. All right, so next week we're gonna look, we're gonna start with chapter three, we're going a little beyond that. So do grab a bookmark on your way out so you know what to read before we come together. And go introduce yourself to a friend, make a new one. It's good for us. Thank you all, see you next week.